0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: Hello and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. Tech stocks drive the S&P 500 to close above 5,000 points for the first time as Wall Street posts its fifth straight positive week in a row. IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva reiterates her call for Chinese authorities to reform the economy and to fix its property sector as she issues a stark warning on growth.
2: Our analysis shows that without deep structural reforms, growth in China can fall below 4%. And that would be very difficult uh, for the country.
0: Former US President Donald Trump provoking a backlash from NATO after saying that he would not stand with allies in the event Russia launched an attack they don't meet defense spending commitments.
3: No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You gotta pay. You gotta pay your bills.
0: An Italian luxury house, Todd's, announces that it will delist from the Milan Stock Exchange in a deal with LVMH-backed PE group Alcarteran with a valuation of around 1.4 billion euros. The momentum continues, doesn't it? Out of the United States on Friday, we saw the uh, S&P 500 hit that magical mark again, but this time to close off. Beyond that magical mark, the S&P 500, beyond 5,000 points is where we're sitting, having managed to gain around half a percent by the close of that trading picture. Then uh, it's the fourth positive session in a row as well for the S&P 500, which was overall, though, a little bit of a mixed day with the Dow Jones, unfortunately, slipping, though, a tenth of a percent there. Uh, We do now have 10 new record highs, then, for the S&P 500 this year alone. As you can tell, that trajectory has just continued as well over the last seven days. The momentum trade has certainly come from the tech counters, which have been uh, fairly responsible for the uptick we have seen as well uh, thus far. Five of this year's six weeks have been in positive territory, 14 out of the last five. 15 have also been in positive moves then uh, when it comes to the last weeks. That moves things since November last year that you've seen that positive tilt. In fact, for the last year-to-date figures then, let's take a look at that, around 5% higher overall uh, was this market that we have seen for the S&P 500, 5.38, to push it then uh, beyond 5%, continuing that uptick. As I said, the MAG-7, it saw them account for around 45%. Of the s p 500's return in january alone right according to bank of america but the question is is this rally actually beginning to broaden out a little bit now I ask the question because you saw industrials as well as healthcare move to record closes even the tech stocks of course which have been moving this uh, these counters a little bit higher Communications also saw their highest close in over two years. So we've been speaking about this broadening out of this rally. Are we beginning to see that then? The Nasdaq also managing to gain, of course, on the back of those tech counters, 6.5% year to date. So some positive moves there across uh, the tech-based giants then. On to the Treasury's picture then. Fed officials, of course, have signaled very loudly that they're not yet ready to cut interest rates and that they'll take their time. Uh, pursuant to, of course, information and data. Speaking of data, we saw on Friday that the CPI printout of the United States was revised then. And, in fact, inflation rose on a month-on-month basis even less than was initially uh, put forward. So that 0.3% month-on-month figure is actually 0.2%. So how close? We In that disinflationary period, of course, then, Just how much does that add to the uh, presumptions then that you will see things move along? Well, the 10-year had actually uh, moved then as well to 4.17 as well. Then that is a two-week high for the 10-year Treasury yield, uh, which is very interesting to kind of note then as well. So we'll see what that means on the data front, of course. Next up on the calendar, you do have January CPI print. You also have PPI numbers and retail sales all said to come out of the united states so we'll see what that does and will it move the needle across the bond market onto the dollar crosses then if you start off just in japan i just want to start off there the yen has now wallowed at what is a 10-week low while the dollar has actually ground out to a fourth week of, up, uh, of upticks then specifically from last week. We saw one week of gains across another week of gains, should I say. Traders continuing to dial back their bets on the interest rate cuts, yes, out of the United States, but really more of the rate increases out of Japan when it comes to that yen. So we're sitting at, seeing it at 149 at this stage. Uh, speaking of which, of course, as I said, we're speaking about that data front that we will be looking out for as well throughout the rest then of this week
1: so if we just take a look at what investors are buying i mean a lot of its technology it was the sector leading the charge last week some very clear trade nvidia stock as well we saw that in the friday session ai is still very much in focus investors are stretching for that So what do you do at this point? Do you sell because you've had the gains, or do you hold on with a little bit of protection? Do you stay invested in some of those big AI names?
0: Yeah, and and it is those AI names, of course, again. Once, I think the other part to this is one, we keep talking about that jobs market, right? Tech companies have actually cut 34,000 jobs since the start of the year, which is uh, one aspect to consider of all of this. But it's not because they're doing badly. It's because they're tilting their focus then to the AI objectives, generative AI being, of course, the buzzword, making that stick is going to be the element I think the market is going to look out for. Just wanted to talk about that 5,000 barrier as well here. It's an important milestone, again, not just because it's a big number, but really because corporate America's earnings continue to look positive. There have been some downgrades with regards to Q1 guidance, and that may play into this market, but... At this level, we're still seeing it uh, manage to move high. You spoke about NVIDIA, the likes of Facebook, uh, Facebook owner Meta, rather. Each of those advancing more than 30 uh, percent this year alone. But there is still, as I said, the broadening out of this rally. Only half of the stocks in the S&P 500 have risen this year. Yep. So there's
1: still more room. Banking stocks don't figure went pretty much yep. nowhere last week. So we saw some weakness in that sector. So I think it's fascinating that we haven't necessarily got still a ton of breadth, right?
0: Yeah, we're 100% too. And if we just look at banking stocks themselves, I mean, banking profits actually declined 45% at the end of 2023 then. But again, that was off the back of what we saw in the banking crisis across the US. So does that get better this year? Because of a changing environment, because inflation comes down, interest rates drop off a little bit, or was that the time for them to have taken advantage and couldn't?
1: So the question I have for this show and the one that we'll pitch to some of the analysts and fund managers later on is whether we bounce a little bit more from here. I mean, 14 out of the past 15 weeks to see the major indices go north. There was a, a report suggesting that if we get more signals from the Fed in March, that money that is still positioned on the sidelines comes back into the market, again, chasing that re-rating around monetary policy. That would just be extraordinary after the gains we've really had yeah. so far this yeah. year.
0: Yeah. No, it certainly would be. And and I think the other aspect to look at, and, and this is what i what I had been uh, looking at and reading, S&P 500, yes, gains as we've seen, around 5% or so then year to date. But what about the equal weighted uh, index then of the S&P 500 that's actually barely moved when you look at the year-to-date figure then it's also trading just at 16 whereas the S&P is at around 20 so maybe a little bit cheaper
1: let's uh, take a look at the calendar It is a packed week for macro data over the next few days the US countries across Europe all reporting key January inflation data the world government summit opens today in Dubai to kick off the week with ecofin and NATO meetings tomorrow and Thursday and earnings season is well and truly underway. We get the latest from Coca-Cola and Heineken in the next few days. We'll also end the weekend star with London Fashion Week kicking off here in the UK on Friday. China's Lunar New Year holiday sees equity markets closed all this week. The country's blue-chip CSI 300 index gained more than 5% last week despite several rocky sessions. Friday's domestic passenger traffic surged by more than a quarter on the year, according to the state news agency. Almost 200 million trips taken across the entire network on uh, the transport network. On television, the Spring Festival Gala sets a live broadcast record notching just under 1.7 billion total views, according to the state broadcaster.
0: Now, on top of volatility in the equity markets, Chinese authorities are currently grappling with deepening deflation and issues in the property sector. Dan Murphy spoke exclusively to IMF Managing Director Kristelina Gorgieva at the World Government Summit in Dubai and asked if Beijing is doing enough to limit the downside risks.
2: We have been uh, advising the uh, Chinese authorities To use more of the fiscal space and broadly policy space, also monetary policy space they have, Uh, we have seen them taking some steps uh, in that uh, direction. What we also discuss with uh, China is the longer-term structural issues that the country needs to address. Our analysis shows that without deep structural reforms, growth in China can fall below 4% and that would be very difficult uh, for the country. So well, what we are looking forward to see in China is a determination uh, to take on some of the outstanding elements of reforms and that means continue with the openness of the economy, continue with the reform of state-owned enterprises, address deeply the real estate uh, sector uh, difficulties address the high level of local government that that reform the pension system. Why? Because we want to see the economy genuinely moving more towards domestic consumption and less reliance on exports. But for that, confidence of the consumer and uh, that means fix the real estate, get the pension system in place, as well as this uh, longer term uh, improvements uh, in the fundamentals of the Chinese economy would be, uh, would be necessary.
0: Now, Gorgieva isn't the only economist to have made her voice heard on the world's second largest economy. Head to our website to check on the widening divide between China's bulls as well as bears. Now, coming up on the show, flower to the people. Sylvia will join us after the break to walk us through the farmer protests that have dominated headlines across the EU. Plus, former President Donald Trump putting NATO leaders on edge, as he suggests he would encourage Russia to attack U.S. allies. Then, we'll also be hearing from Liberty's CEO Corrado Passera as the lender posts a near 40% jump in net profit for 2023. Don't miss that exclusive conversation. It's happening at 8:30 CET.
1: ECB Governing Council member Fabio Panetta says the time for the central bank to cut rates is fast approaching. The Bank of Italy governor said progress towards the 2 per cent inflation target was rapid and the bank would soon need to move to loosen policy. Panetta also warned about the risks of cutting too late, saying this could increase volatility in markets and the economy. The EU has agreed on a preliminary deal to ease tight fiscal rules giving member states more time to reduce debt as well as incentivizing further public investment. The amendment of the rules comes after several countries saw debt increases as they increased spending to help their economies recover from the pandemic. Both member states and the EU parliament will need to endorse the deal before it can take effect in 2025.
0: Now, Polish politicians are calling for the EU Commissioner for Agriculture to resign as farmers across his home country of Poland and several other EU states demonstrate against the bloc's policies. Protesters in Spain clashed with police on Saturday as they attempted to blockade a main road in the Madrid area. Spanish farmers have joined their counterparts from the likes of France as well as Belgium and demonstrating regularly against EU agricultural policies. Now, Sylvia does join us for a little bit more uh, on this story. Uh, Sylvia, let's let's walk through exactly the protests we're seeing across Europe.
3: Yeah, so I thought it would be interesting to understand what's driving these protests, because they're already having an impact on some european policy, so let's look at what has happened over the last couple of weeks where we have seen farmers protesting in at least 10 european countries such as france belgium germany and so on and there's several reasons behind these protests there are some country-specific problems that are driving the farmers to take to the streets but there's also common european issues such as, for instance, the fact they're facing cheaper imports from outside the the block. Sale prices, just to give you an idea, farmers are getting at least 9% less for their product in late 2023 compared to late 2022. So they have been essentially making less money for their products. They're also complaining about higher costs and climate change. Now, the reason behind climate change and why climate change is a problem for farmers is that they are saying that some of Europe's ambitious policies are actually hard to comply with. Here's our conversation with Luc Vernes, he's the Secretary General of Farm Europe, explaining why Europe's climate policies have become a problem for farmers
4: the main idea is to reduce agricultural production and to have an increase in food price. And we see that this equation is not working for the farmers for different reasons. The first one is we see consumer cannot afford paying more their food and we see, for example, all across Europe, the organic sector uh, in a very uh, big difficulties, so that's the first thing, and then in order to uh, overcome the investment wall uh, linked to the uh, changes and green transitions, uh, farmers do not have access anymore to cheap money. Uh, and bankers are much more reluctant to to, um, uh, to, to borrow money to, to the farming sector. So we really need to uh, reflect within the European Union on how to deliver the transition because clearly there is a need to move on and farmers know that climate change is here and they need to adapt their farm but it's a path, the political path that needs to be uh, adapted.
3: Now i want us to take a step back and understand why these complaints and these protests matter so ultimately we're already seeing one trade deal between the european union and south america on hold as a result of these protests too at the same time there are also concerns that the narrative among the farmers could actually feed into the rhetoric of far-right parties as we approach the European elections in early June. And then last but not least, I mentioned this earlier, climate ambitions are already being toned down. Just to give you an idea, the EU has scrapped plans to halve pesticide use. And they've also already left out targets for the agricultural sector when it comes to bringing down their greenhouse gas emissions so i had the chance to speak to the eu's agricultural commissioner and he actually said that he's happy about the fact that the eu has actually toned down some of its climate policies
2: i'm happy uh, about this decision because uh, it was not fully fair proposal not fully fair for member states reduction of pesticide 50 uh, percent um, for all member states was uh, not uh, fair because there is different starting points for for, for for member states
3: the EU wants to be carbon neutral by 2050. Is that still feasible?
2: generally of course there is this is, this is the general target for the for the uh, whole economy but uh, but in agriculture we we should to take into account the specific of, of, uh, of agriculture.
3: So there's a lot at stake here. Let's see how this narrative will continue to feed into the broader uh, European elections as we approach them in June, but also how much the European Union will actually have to change some of its climate ambitions in the coming years. So
1: yeah, I know some people have looked at this story in the farmers' protests and say, look, this, just, this is anti-globalization. Mm-hmm. But the reality is there's individual stories in some of these countries as to why we're seeing protests, right? And for for me, the broader issue is European policy when it comes to green transition. That, what you've seen in the past for many, many decades has been big subsidies going towards a very small number of companies, about 20 odd percent of companies. So, effectively driving this big industrialization mm. of agriculture. So, 20 percent of companies in Europe receiving those subsidies. So, it helps the very large agri commodity groups totally. and very big food companies. This has to change, right? If we're going to say reduce the use of pesticides, that's where the Europeans want to go to. Well, you can't also open the borders and allow products to come through from other countries at a cheaper price using pesticides.
3: There's actually a very interesting expression by the Prime Minister of Belgium. He described this as a lasagne of problems. There's just so many layers of issues here. And when you think about the common agricultural policy, this is a landmark policy for the EU. It's what has actually defined and brought the EU together for many years. They're actually looking at uh, reviewing this policy, but thus far what he has promoted is indeed supporting the big, bigger farms and the, the bigger companies as well. As you think about it, we're talking about €60 billion in terms of subsidies. How are they going to review this? Are they actually going to add more money into this pocket? Because the farmers, one of the complaints that they have at this stage is that they can't get enough support from banks, so they need more cash. And one of the comments from the Agriculture Commission was indeed that, that they can't just ask the farmers to change the way that they farm, that they need more financial incentives. So
0: a lot of them, uh, I mean, the questions then become, is it just the regulation? Because what one of the farmers that actually, in a, read- in a story that I read, had actually said that they're drowning us in regulation ultimately. And and one of the things is that because if you take Netherlands, for example, they had to shut down a few of the farms and actually bring a few together and buy them up because there was a bit of a struggle back then. But now things are perhaps slightly different. Is it is it the lack of ability to actually tune into the time you're in and actually move quickly when it comes to regulation, for example.
3: So there's always the aspect of regulation, whatever policy you assess when it comes to the EU. And farmers are indeed complaining that the EU's Green Deal, so the way that they want to reach carbon neutrality by 2050, is too aggressive and it's too hard for them to comply with. But I would just highlight that there's actually a broader concern here. I spoke to two officials who suggested that the fact that uh, we're already seeing impact of, of, of these farmers on the way that the EU does policy? What's going to happen next? What's going to be the next group that's going to arrive in Brussels and say, we want you to change your climate ambitions? Where does this leave the EU as it's, you know, it has always said it's a champion for climate policy. Can it continue to argue that? Do you
1: think more subsidies are going to be required? I mean, if we look at the German protests as well, we saw the change to the German constitutional court decision around the budget, and that meant farmers were also sort of left out there on their own. What does it mean in terms of
3: the amount of support required at this stage? The question I have is, where is the money going to come from? Because there's so much pressure on European officials to come up with more cash for all sorts of policy. When it comes to the farmers, yes, they want more financial support. That's one of the things that the officials are looking at at this stage. But where is the cash going to come from? Are we going to see them taking such a big step as they did during COVID in terms of borrowing money together to support the farmers? Let's see.
0: Yeah, it's, it's. I think it's one that is going to need a lot of conversation. But if, like you and said, a political
3: year also. One hundred percent. So I if
0: this, that. if this goes, whichever direction this goes in now, mm. as you said, it sets precedent for future, right? And a lot more people then come to the EU saying, listen, actually change this, we want you to change that. And then you've lost control completely. Look, some would say that the EU have already lost control of many aspects, but this becomes a big one to start.
3: Totally, one of the analysts actually said it and could be the champions. oil sector coming to the EU next yeah. and say, we don't like the way that you've designed the green deal, let's change that. And the EU has been
0: pretty much a champion. The, one of the main differences between the EU and the US in terms of growth has actually been green emissions, and it's the one thing that they could now slack on. Because of a divergence of policies and views,
3: and for me, as obviously I, as you know, I follow the EU very closely. Yeah. I also notice a change in the way that centre-right politicians are already preparing for the campaign and the so way taking
0: advantage of they this.
3: are changing their their tone to address these concerns from from mm-hmm. the farmers and to avoid giving even more seats. To the far right because that is one of the main concerns as you approach the european elections is that we're actually going to see more far-right lawmakers at the european parliament so they're
0: turning more left left-leaning people a little bit more right if possible
3: to some extent to
0: some extent. okay <laughs> it's more <laughs> well, complex than that <laughs> yeah no of course okay well let's see how things fare sylvia yes. thank you
1: thank you for listening to squabox europe express
0: For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.